Okay, so as a kid, when we moved to a super small town in northern Michigan, we had to do it the hard way, the harder way. Because we didn't just move to the small town in the middle of nowhere. No, 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 no. We moved to the outskirts of the small town in the middle of nowhere. And when we'd venture into the small town to get a sack of dog food from the IGA grocery store, maybe put some gas in our country squire station wagon, well, we are in for some special looks from some very special people. And yes, as the only black family around, a lot of that could be expected, but sometimes they seem to put a little bit more oomph into their outrage. Their suspicious glances, and one day I asked the neighbor boy, Carl May, what's all that about? And he says, they're just trying to tell you where you're at on the pecking order. See, in the town, they're on the top, and out here, we're on the bottom. They just want to let you know. And I nod, even though I don't know what he's going on about pecking order, but then we get chickens. And I learned that pecking order is a real thing. The chickens, especially chickens that are just being introduced to each other, they will peck, they will fight with the other chickens until they establish who's who and what is what. After that, mostly, the fighting's done, mostly. Mostly. Unless you introduce something new, something odd, something from the outside, then, then, the fight can start back up again. Today on Snap Judgment, we add something odd. And it comes from up above. Snap Judgment proudly presents Space Rocks. One amazing story you will not soon forget. My name is Ben Washington. Strap in. But remember, on the farm, the chicken that causes the most trouble gets cooked. When you're listening, listening to Snap Judgments. We begin. You know, there's something special about the small town of Montrose. Surrounded by the majestic mountains and the quiet mesas of western Colorado, these mountains, they've always had a pull drawing people who want something more, something bigger, something shinier. Which brings us to today's story. A story that starts off with a crash. Snap Judgment. We know something fell up there. It was a cold morning. Blaine Reed strapped into a neighbor's two-seater Piper Cub airplane and ascended over the mesas of western Colorado, up to where the air gets thin. My hope was is that we could look down out of this airplane and see impact pits in the snow, you know, maybe some broken tree limbs or something. But when he looked down, he instead saw the hillsides crawling with people. When we get over the drop-off into Montrose, there that mountainside, there was people crawling all over it trying to find something. Yeah, they were trying to find a meteorite. Scores of people with metal detectors and backpacks 
were trying to find a piece of rock that crashed down from outer space. Dude, I took my quad, went up there and crossed the bridge and hunted for it. It was just, it was fun to go look for something, you know, that might be valuable. And uh, of course, everybody was out trying to find it, get a piece of it and everything. Dwayne was one of those hopeful prospectors on the Mesa that snowy morning, searching for a fallen space rock. Like a lot of people in town, he'd seen the fireball in the sky the night before. He had been driving home from a square dance meeting. And all of a sudden, here's the, the sky just lit up with this orange uh, a streamer. You know, it, it come in with a lot of magnitude and, you know, fire and everything behind it. Boy, it really left a streak across the sky and everything. Like a red fireball streak come out of the sky and then landed out there in the prairie someplace. The fireball was a piece of cosmic debris plummeting through the atmosphere as fast as 36,000 miles per hour, leaving a glorious orange afterglow in the night sky. I've always remembered Mom said if you, you see a falling star, you're supposed to make a wish and it'll come true, so I'm sure I made a wish. What do you think you wished for? Oh, I don't know, probably, probably to win the lotto or to meet a pretty girl, who knows? <laughs> Dwayne Renfro is 70 now. He's a retired vet, he lives alone, in a trailer in the small used-to-be mining town of Montrose, Colorado. Never been married, never had no kids. I got lots of hobbies. I'm in a black powder club, and I'm in a quad club, and the metal detectors club, and the gold prospecting club, and the square dance club. And so people like Dwayne Renfro were already geared up to go hunting when the fireball came to town. There's one. There's three, you know. And then Blaine Reed, like the guy who went up in the Piper Cub airplane, he wrote an article in the Montrose Daily Press telling them exactly how to do it, exactly how to find a meteorite. When an asteroid out there starts as a chondrite like this and gets big enough that, you know, impacts, you know, aluminum 26. That when it hits the Earth from space, like a blast from a shotgun, it'll form pits in the ground. It stays on the surface with the, with the stone material. So there is no such thing as an iron meteorite that has, you know, 1% manganese in it. So, and that's just a matter of just physics. That's just what happens when you melt this stuff down and that's how it separates. The meteorites themselves, that's kind of their interesting part is they, they have to connect you with another world because they're not from Earth. I mean, they're not from a different universe or a different solar system, but, you know, I'm used to thinking outside Blaine the Blaine says he was a nerdy so kid with few friends and mean parents. He was in sixth grade when he saw his first fireball, standing in his front yard in the west side of Denver. He looked up at the sky. I saw this meteor starting to come in. It was white, and then it turned, you know, brilliant green, and then it even started going to yellow, and I swear, good thing there was about six, eight inches of snow on the ground, because I just was so dumbstruck, I literally fell over backwards. Blaine was so excited by the dancing flames he saw in the sky, he ran around the neighborhood for hours, searching for fragments of the meteorite. And I started searching the neighborhood, and I came up with this really vesicular, weird, you know, metallic, glassy-looking rock, and I found my meteorite, and that's it. I was hooked. It makes you think differently. It makes you have to expand your mind to consider it. You kind of have to ignore all the day-to-day -day earthly stuff when you're holding a piece of outer space. He didn't actually find a meteorite that day. But 
Today, Blaine's office is covered in maps and rock diagrams, pictures of the Bolivian mountains where he actually found a meteorite. That is what's called a eucrite. It's a type of meteorite called an achondrite, and that is actually from the surface of the asteroid Vesta. And there's his desk. It's a mess of rocks and dishes and rocks and plastic bags. It's like, this isn't that pretty, but this is telling us the story of an asteroid that survived big enough and long enough to actually become quasi a small planet with, a, with an iron core, a, you know, an olivine-rich mantle, and, and, a, and a basaltic lava surface. And now the rest of Blaine's house is decorated with dinosaur bones, a World War II missile, a toy airplane. He drinks water from a reused yellowed plastic Gatorade bottle and reaches into the front pocket of his jeans. It's so incredibly valuable. There's a piece I carry in my pocket, normally. Mm-hmm. It's there. Basically... You carry that in your pocket all yeah. the time? Well, not all the time, just when I remember. You just happen to have that in your pocket. Well, I like showing people. Now you got something that was out there, you know, somewhere around Jupiter, you know, and, 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 and that's it. I mean, you just have something that is not from this world. It makes you think differently. Blaine's bought and sold space rocks from all over the world. He has a degree in geology. I just, I am a meteorite guy, but if I said the meteorite guy, I'm sure one of these other clowns will come out of the woodwork. So on his 30th anniversary as a meteorite guy, he came up with a new name. The meteorite pimp. You know, I had a, he even I had a, made commemorative wine glasses. My 30th anniversary, I think that's why I said pimping meteorites for 30 years. <laughs> he sends paper catalogs to customers and twice a month emails to some 300 subscribers. He's so well-known in the Space Rocks community that people like Bill Nye the Science Guy call Blaine when they want meteorites. Blaine has handled hundreds of meteorites. So many, he says he can identify them with his hands. Hey, hold, hang on, let me see who we got going on. He takes calls from prospectors uh, and collectors from all over the world Hello? who want his opinion. Uh-huh. Is this rock I found from outer space? I haven't had the chance to look. Is it a real not, meteorite? All right, talk to you later. Bye. And all this actually turns out to be quite dangerous work. There's come close a couple times to throwing fists. You know, when I tell them they don't have a meteorite, they get so angry they start swinging, and don't get me wrong, I will swing back. Another hopeful prospector came to his house with rocks in his hands. And I said, it's not a meteorite, I'm sorry. He says, well, it has to be because I was raking my leaves and this was sitting on top of the pile. Where else could it come from? I says, well, you know... What it looks like to me is that somebody's been out finding the old lead tire balancing weights and melted them down. He just started getting angry to the point of pushing me around. You know, this is a meteorite. You build, you don't know what you're doing. And, 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 and it's like it came real close. Right after that fireball, after Blaine wrote that article about how to identify meteorites, calls came in from all over town from excited folks who had found rocks. Blaine was the guy who had to over and over again tell them, nope, not a meteorite. And does that take some sort of emotional toll on you? It does, yeah, sure, yeah. I'm not the guy who's like, oh, ha, oh, oh, you have a fake rock and yeah. deal with it. No, I mean, it's sad. I mean, I, do, I don't have to do that too many times, thankfully. One of the saddest cases was a man in Montrose who found what he believed to be so many meteorites in his front yard that he went out and bought a new Durango truck. He filled it with his meteorites and brought them to Blaine. He thought he'd won the lottery. His wife had called me before he drove up there screaming at me that she was gonna sue me that, you know, I needed to fix her husband. I needed to help him because I had created this mess. So Blaine enlisted his phone number and got a PO box for his mail. 
I'm not going to allow people to come here. So I, you know, Dave, you know, I talked with him because he sells metal detectors and stuff. He stopped meeting people at his home for meteorite appraisal. Instead, he met them in a store called... Mr. Detector. We try to meet the needs of the prospectors and, and meteorite hunters. Most towns don't have a store that meets the needs of prospectors. But Montrose is kind of a rock and gem town. It used to serve the nearby gold, silver, and uranium mines. But most of those mines closed a long time ago. At Mr. Detector, you can find metal detectors, then and now golden gem maps, silver coins, and laminated $2 bills and shiny display cases. I think everybody should have a pet meteorite. The store (laughs) is run by this guy, Dave Lehman. So you've got one. Wouldn't you like to have one? Every few days or so, Blaine goes into Mr. Detector to identify any rocks dropped off by hopeful meteorite hunters. When we look at something and it feels like a rock, it looks like a rock, we call it a rock. Well, Blaine looks at it and he says, well, this is a a Brescia feldspar. This is uh, granite. This is whatever. Uh, I should show you one here. Dave puts a cardboard packing box on the table and opens it slowly. He pulls out okay. index cards glued to rocks. See any similarities there? Yeah. Does that fit in? This is a meteorite, this is a meteor wrong. Whoa, how do you know? It's a difference in the... That's, that's got uh, high carbon, right? Yeah, carbon, manganese. That's one of Steve Curry's specimens. Steve Curry. That's, that's, the, one he, that's the one he gave me. And why do you keep it? Steve Curry came into Dave's shop many years after that Thanksgiving fireball. He asked me one day if I would be interested in in handling any of the ones he had. I mean, it didn't make any difference to me. Steve Curry left rocks with Mr. Detector. But he did something else that most rock hopefuls don't really do. Along with his rocks, he left a list of elements to prove that the rocks were actually pieces of meteorites. So Blaine went to Mr. Detector to look at the rocks. And, and, I, and, and of course I went down there and, and there was like four different rocks and I looked at them all, here's a chunk of magnetite, here's a basalt rock, you know, here's a you know weathered quartzite, and here is a, 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 a you know, tumbled. meteor rungs. Osmium iridium, well, I don't think there's osmium in meteorites to speak of iridium maybe. Uh, rhodium. SU, there's no element SU. <laughs> um, no, that's for sucker. Do you think he believed that this was a meteorite? I think he did. I really think he did. When Dave called Steve Curry and told him his rocks were mere rocks, Steve wouldn't accept that. So, you know, that's when he called me and starts yelling at me that, you know, I need to, you know, come to his house and, 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 and learn the error of my ways. He was like, well, you just don't understand what you're looking at. He had already fallen on this idea that he was a billionaire. He had deluded himself into believing that our science wasn't right and his was better. Steve Curry wasn't your average hopeful prospector. This guy was just doing nothing but growing in strength and stature. Steve Curry also used big words like octahedrite and feldspathic breccia. He carried around binders full of lists of mineral elements, books like NASA's Apollo Lunar Sample Atlas and the Lunar Meteorite Compendium, rocks of all shapes and sizes, 
all that he'd found here in Colorado. He pointed to all this science of his own when he gave lectures at the local library, saying that anyone could find a meteorite if they just looked. You know, that was uh, uh, basically looking for meteorites is a very, very labor and financially intensive job. And not to be negative, but I'm, it's something that is extremely hard. It's like, well, screw you. When I tried to track down Steve Curry, first, I found him on Facebook. His cover photo is a woman holding a cat on top of a human-sized boulder. His comment below the picture? Even a cat can identify a lunar. He wrote his own articles about local meteorite findings for the Montrose Daily there, Press. Full-page spreads on them and hyping all this bulldink that was purely bulldink. And so Blaine felt really like he couldn't just stand by and watch someone else spread lies to his own town about meteorites. So he called the paper's editor. I says, look, this is bulldink. Blaine says... No one at the paper took him seriously. I left papers behind, and they just had no interest in communicating. Mm. Their theory was that, you know, I'm trying to hide new meteorites from the world to keep mine more valuable. And I tried to explain that to them, and it's, I'm not trying to hide anything. Steve Curry and his growing reputation was getting to Blaine. He seemed unable to let it go. Blaine even picked up the phone and called the library asking them to stop Curry from giving his lectures. They just basically said F.O., you know, and hung up. So Blaine started hanging posters around town with the word WANTED in big capital letters up top. Underneath, Steve Curry specimens. I'll pay $10 per specimen. I only need to borrow it, non-destructive. And, and again, it was going to be left with Dave Lehman here. I, I understood there might be some issues, but I had no concept, no knowledge, no idea that it would go this way. I mean, so what do you do? Well, again, once your wheels leave the ground, you own the ride. When we return, will Blaine Reed be able to prove his theory that Steve Curry's rocks are just... rocks? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Space Rocks episode. When last we left, Blaine Reed had started a poster campaign to collect Steve Curry's rocks and prove that they were just mere rocks. What happens next, you'll never guess. Snap Judgment. Blaine's game plan. Collect Steve Curry's rocks, prove they were mere rocks, then take them to the police as evidence of Steve Curry's fraud. Soon, townspeople began to offer up their magic space rocks, the rocks they had gotten from Steve Curry, to Blaine's scientific testing. One poor girl brought in her little rock, and, and she was a hairdresser, and, 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 and she had a note signed by Curry, you know, North Acidic Lunar Highlands Breccia, this is worth $64,500 for this little golf ball-sized rock, and it was just a hunk of basalt or something. I had to let her know, and she starts crying, saying, oh, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, my God. I felt really bad because, you know, she was just bawling her head off. But it's not like Steve Curry had sold that little rock to the hairdresser. It was a gift. All the eight or so rocks Blaine was able to get from his poster campaign were gifts given out by Steve Curry. 
So as Blaine went around town saying Steve Curry was a fraudster, Steve Curry's followers said no, he's a giver. They said he's a guy who knew how to find magical pieces of the great big universe and wanted to share them. He was like an intergalactic Santa Claus. When he showed up at local clubs like Dwayne's Metal Detector Club, people embraced him. He knew a lot about geology and everything, but I don't know much of anything about geology. I just, I pick up a rock and if it's pretty, I take it home. He brought all of his meteorites and stuff and gave a talk and showed us all about meteorites and how you could tell it was a meteorite. Some of them bring, you know, according to the news and stuff, some of them bring a pretty, pretty penny. Steve Curry told stories to the townspeople about finding meteorites right outside of Montrose. And so we asked him if we could go with him, and he said, sure. And I think he really expected five of us would show up, and I think there was about 20 of us. The hopeful prospectors showed up at Black Canyon National Park that day. We got out there, and shoot, I must have found 13 different rocks with my metal detector. he come up and examined it, and he showed us exactly how he could tell it was a meteorite, because as it entered the atmosphere on fire, uh, it showed, you know, uh, like the molten rock and everything that it would have been in, a trail that would have probably left behind it and everything. That he, he could explain it a lot better than I could, but but standing there looking at that rock, I, I believed every bit that that was a meteorite and everything. And He even almost convinced the Montrose City Council to name Montrose the meteorite capital of the world. After the gold and silver mines closed down decades ago, Montrose went from a well-oiled boomtown to a sleepy ex-mining town. So, as Steve Curry went around showing how Montrose was a hot spot for meteorites, he became sort of a hope. A hope that Blaine, for the life of him, could not break down with his anti-Curry poster campaigns or internet blasts people in Montrose were hooked. And I was sitting there with a broken leg, and rather than ask somebody to take me to the seminar at the, the library, I called the librarian and she said she would give my phone number to Steve Curry, the speaker. He called and came down I had to yell, come in. So he came in. Then I I, uh, wheeled over to one of the windows where we could look out that I could point out to him where I had seen black rocks. And uh, he went down with his truck, came back into the house. He uh, brought in how many rocks? They were grainy, and uh, they weren't smooth. He put them in my lap to start with, (laughs) gently, because I was in a a wheelchair. He explained a little bit about meteorites to me. He washed one or two of them in the sink, and I was kind of horrified at that, that, ah, that clay soil going down my drain? I hope he doesn't clog it up, but I can't say that there was anything unusual about him. He didn't have long hair. 
I know that. Steve Curry spent a whole day bringing rocks back and forth from the front yard into the house. And then he stood in the kitchen holding a rock. And I could see he kind of weighed it mentally in his hand. And uh, then he said, uh, uh, it should sell about uh, $2,000. And it surprised me. You might just as well have told me, uh, you've got a diamond mine here that, that's worth a million or $2 million. I was left speechless. I was just simply left speechless. At, but you believed him? Yes. I had no doubt or had no reason to not believe what he was saying. So, like, I feel if someone came to my house and picked up a bunch of rocks and said, you know, these rocks are worth $2,000 each, I probably would say, well, I don't believe you. So I'm wondering what made you believe him. Well, I had no reason not to believe him. He was going around giving seminars. The librarian had apparently accepted him as a speaker. At any rate, I was friends with Steve Curry. Everybody needs friends. When you live alone, you need friends just like anybody does. Can you let the dog in? Um, can you tell me again, just introduce yourself, your name, and how old you are? Uh, well, you already know my name is Jane Doe. Okay, and can you tell me a little bit about why you don't want to use your name? If the Meteorite Society is powerful enough to eliminate Steve Curry, what will they do to me? That is why I do not want to be advertised. When she's talking about the Meteorite Society, she's actually talking about Blaine Reed. And while he didn't eliminate Steve Curry, their feud would escalate to heights no one saw coming. Blaine was waiting and waiting for any evidence at all that Steve Curry was actually profiting off his meteorites. And then he got a call from a friend. Steve Curry had been spotted, picking up money at a local gem store in the next town over. Blaine knew the store. He'd already tried to prove to them that their display case of Steve Curry's meteorites were fake. I try to, you know, d d see if the store would allow me to come up and show them that their stuff was fake, you know, that Curry stuff was fake. And they just said, no, we won't sell it to you because we know you're out to get Curry. And they were on Curry's side. Yes, because he said, they said he has neat paperwork. He's got maps and diagrams. You say this, but he shows that. So what are you going to do? So Blaine strapped an old spy watch onto his brother's wrist. It had a hidden video camera. The pair went inside the store. I'd never done anything like that before, but you just kind of have to, you know, breathe deep, calm down, and say, well, okay, here we go. They found a case with rocks, priced, Blaine says, in total for some $750,000. Blaine pointed to the most affordable one, about the size of a penny, priced at $640. From the meteorite, or meteorite parentheses, meteor wrong, but... The rock came with papers saying it was from that same fireball that flew over Montrose so many years ago. But as far as Blaine could tell, it was a piece of scrap iron. He bought it with his wife's credit card. 
because I couldn't lay down a credit card that says Blaine Reed. Right. Did you regret spending money on a fake rap? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it, but, you know, again, you it, yeah, I absolutely needed it. This was his chance, finally, to prove that Curry was committing fraud. Yeah, I did take it to a lab. I, I maintained possession of the rock the entire time because I wanted to make sure there was a chain of ownership. Key labs showed that the rock had almost no nickel in it, only trace amounts. So not a meteorite by Cambridge Encyclopedia of Meteorite Standards. Victory. Blaine drove with those papers down to the police station. Went up to the uh, went up to the receptionist and says, "I need to talk to somebody. I've got you know a, a fairly serious case of fraud." When I went in there to do all of this, they just thought I was freaking nuts. She just she kind of looked at me, shook her head, like whatever. She handed Blaine a form for a traffic ticket. You know, just write something down, and I filled it all out. I said, "Okay, I'm done." And then they sent out a you know a, a, an officer to collect it up, and he was just like he's looking. I was like, "Well." Big burly guy, I don't know what, this is just, you know, as far as I'm aware, this is just, you know, buyer beware. And he took it away. And, and I felt really dumb, really stupid, because honestly, I'd never considered it as just a buyer beware issue. Were you like, yeah, maybe they're right? Like maybe yeah, I mean, I never thought of it that way. I just thought of it, it's like you've got a guy openly committing fraud. And then, two weeks later, Blaine got a call from a police officer. Officer Petrowski asked Blaine to come down to the station. And that's, you know, I sat down, it was just him and I and then this great big meeting room table. Mm-hmm. He had enough knowledge of meteorites to know that I wasn't, you know, talking BS. You know, he understood enough to see the evidence. He was saying, I can, you know, I can show that, you know, I can show the evidence we have, but there's no guarantee the DA is going to do anything with it. Were you relieved? Yeah, I mean, something might happen. Yeah, sure. I mean, Did and then... feel less stupid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Officer Petrowski called Steve Curry in for questioning. It ain't over, Snappers. It's nowhere near over. When we return, Steve Curry finds himself inside a Colorado police station at the center of an investigation. When Snap Judgment, the Space Rocks episode continues, stay tuned. WNYC Studios and Snap Judgment's Orbiting Hall of Justice. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Space Rocks episode. My name is from Washington, and when last we left, Steve Curry was being interrogated by the police. Just let me know. I'm good. All right. I could probably spend more time than you want to spend on meteorites. But... Yeah, you know, uh, meteorites are very interesting. I got to admit, I got to, they're, they're a pretty cool thing to learn about. So... In the tape of that interrogation, Curry takes rocks and books and binders from his briefcase and sets them onto a table. Officer Petrowski asks him if he agrees with the accepted definition of a meteorite from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Meteorites. Curry says yes and. See, what we're experiencing here is a new science, uh, and I am a part of that wave that is giving these scientists new information to go back and correct the things they've said about uh, meteorites in the Cambridge. You have to look back because the Cambridge basically came together in the 50s, 60s, early 70s 
and um, that information was good then, but it's not necessarily good now. It's also good in here. Well, you have to take everything that you um, do, including my stuff, with a grain of salt until you can actually prove it. Right, and it's been proven at that standard at no, many no. different no. levels. It's been accepted, but all of those things are uh, up for change. And that's the science that we live in. I'm sorry, it's just, if you make a new discovery and uh, you get it accepted, like these folks. What's your new discovery other than the fact you're saying meteorites don't have to have nickel in them? No, they don't really have to have nickel. See, nickel is only Curry explains of to Officer Petrowski that meteorites don't need as much nickel as we once thought. He also tells Officer Petrowski he has researchers on his side. Who's uh, agreed with your findings? University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Who can I contact there? Dr. Neil Greenberg. But then cautions Officer Petrowski against contacting them. They're all against him, Curry says. There is a, a massive campaign to destroy all my research, and it starts with this number one guy, and that's Randy Corte. Two years ago. To destroy you? Absolutely. But you said he's someone I should contact that sure. will agree with you. Phil, Phil, he should, he would. But you and said he will, but he wants to destroy you? He does what he does. Here it is. In his official publication. Petrowski decides that what Curry is selling is not a meteorite as defined by the scientific community. What you're selling and purporting to be selling mm -hmm. is not accurate to what people are actually getting there, not meteorites or well, terrestrial pieces of iron. I, I beg to differ. And we can differ all you want, but at this point, um, uh, you gotta understand too. There's different levels to handle this. Um, I'm dealing with the one specific case. Okay. And, Officer uh, Petrowski gave Curry a summons to a trial. All right, but you need to understand that what you might think is right may not be right anymore. I'm gonna leave you with some things, and I trust that you will read them. Sure. Uh, the fellow sure. that started all this, of course, would be Blaine Reed. Okay. All right. And uh, I'm gonna leave. And about a year after Blaine hung his first wanted posters. Blaine and dozens of local Montrosians found their seats in a county courtroom for the trial of Steve Curry. I've never felt and seen so much anger and hatred aimed at me. Blaine and about five or six other people were on one side of the courtroom. The other side was jam-packed. Curry followers had come out to defend their rocks this one woman screaming that Curry had given her $1.2 million of rocks and she's hidden them in a deep place so this piece of man and points to me won't steal them because when I die, those, those go to my church and they can build new buildings. One of those people was Jane Doe, the woman who had let Curry search for meteorites in her backyard. Steve Curry said very plainly, meteorites are abundant. And Jane Doe believed that Blaine had an agenda. Meteorites are rare. They are very expensive. Who's going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for that meteorite if they're abundant? Ah, so Steve Curry was. But the in court sided with Blaine. With Steve Curry was found guilty of theft, fraud in affecting sales, and criminal simulation. He was given a sentence of three years in prison. It was just another interesting chapter on the western slope of Colorado. 
This is Paul Palladino, the director of the Montrose Library. You read the old newspapers, you find out that people are people, and these things happen all the time, and they have happened all the time, and meaning stories and, um, you know, if, if you want to talk about fraud, the, the Old West is full of it, swindles and land schemes and, um, you know, you know it, it's just um, people are always looking for an easy way and they find people who are willing to believe. Steve Curry didn't respond to multiple requests to talk to us. And Blaine, he's still living in a mobile home outside Montrose, selling meteorites. We got the moon coming up. We may be, I got to get this thing aligned quickly because we're going to lose. So I got to figure out how to do this real quick. It's a summer night. Blaine is setting up a telescope in his front yard. Nice move, buddy. He wants to show me planets, to show me how far away into outer space his pieces of rock come from. Well, it's the moon in fine detail. I mean, come on, the thing's, you know, 60 million miles away on close approach, 35, and far, you know, distance, it's 130, you know, and it's neat, and you, you can look at it and say, I'm holding a piece of that right now. Hey, the moon's coming up. I'll put the 50 grams of, you know, moon rock in your hand and see what you feel when you look at it and say, I'm touching a piece of that right now. I know you probably don't give a but, you know, but that's, <laughs> but that's, you know, but that's it. I mean, you, it's a tangible connection. Because if I make the connection between what I see in outer space and the little moon rock I held in my hand, maybe then I'll understand the value of Blaine's rocks and his fight to keep them separate from mere scrap metal and gravel. Big thanks to Brendan Borrell for its original reporting in Montrose and Delta, Colorado. You can hear more about the continuing fallout between Steve Curry and Blaine Reed in his article in The Verge. We'll have a link at snapjudgment.org. Additional thanks to Blaine and his brother Blake Reed, to Ryan Brown, to Zilla May at Mountain of the West, to Paul Palladino, Dave Lehman, and Dwayne Renfro. The original score for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Shana Sheely and Jasmine Aguilera. Okay, so space rocks, moon dust, people believe a lot of things. But people want you to believe a lot of things. And sometimes there's a master plan. And even better, sometimes that master plan is a family affair. Producer Andrew Seltzer explains. When I was in high school, my uncle Ron and his family moved from New York City out to the Burbs to Maplewood, New Jersey. My uncle was an artist, and Maplewood wasn't exactly a thriving hub of the art world, especially compared to the city. So when he opened a gallery on a rundown back street, everyone thought it was kind of quaint. But then one day I heard from some of my family that something peculiar had happened and that Uncle Ron's little gallery was getting attention. This is how Uncle Ron explains it. I was going into the gallery one day, and this kind of quiet, shy black guy was standing outside. And I asked him if he wanted to come in. He acted a little reluctant, but he did come in. And then he just sort of stood there and looked at me. 
and he handed me an A.M.P. bag, which I opened up and was full of these little cardboard paintings. Most of them were like sort of magical looking still lives, little sailboats and teardrops. Other ones were of slaves and various kind of slave encumberments. I said, these were great, you know, I'd like to show these here. And he left them and he never told me his name, never, never spoke at all. Every time I asked him a question that was personal, he would just put his hands up to his lips and said, shh. He said he wasn't quite sure what to make of the encounter. But then a few days later, another clue appeared. In the back, outside the gallery, Ron found a suspicious package. There was a box. Inside the box were all these hundreds of little pieces of broken styrofoam with a little note on top of it, which was a a way of how to put the thing together. It was actually a a broken-up, large painting that had to be reassembled. And after uh, two days of assembling it, it was a eight by eight foot, sort of a somber looking, dark, someone coming out of the darkness with light eyes, a slave with a noose around his neck. So even though my Uncle Ron said he still didn't know anything about this guy, he decided to hang the art up in the gallery and introduce his work to the world. The paintings were great, and I was just going to show them and you know, if I sold any of them, he would get the money. A lot of people showed a lot of interest, and when they heard the story, of course, it was like, wow, I'm really interested. And then the word sort of got out, and sort of a firestorm started. And the show was, you know, an incredible success. Everything sold, and people, a lot of New York collectors were very interested in it. Word of Ron's anonymous artist rippled through the art world. And before long, an art critic for the New York Times, Barry Schwabsky, was reviewing the show was, you know, very impressed with the show. He really liked it. Gave it a very good review, along with a bunch of question marks, since the artist was anonymous. And that brought a lot of people in. Once the Times wrote about it, it was on. The art was selling, the small ones were going for 150 bucks, and the large ones about 900 the show made about $25,000. It got so much attention. It was like an artist's dream, you know, selling it all out. Things were great, but with success came scrutiny. And then there were collectors who wanted to find out who he was. Well, I said, I didn't have any idea how to get a hold of him, where to find him. And they suggested maybe they should hire a private detective. And I was like, man, you know, I don't really think so. And that's when my uncle decided things had gone too far. He called up the New York Times writer who had gotten him all the attention and said he needed to set the record straight. That's when I called up Schwabsky and told him that I was the anonymous artist. There was no mysterious black man with a plastic bag. My Uncle Ron was the anonymous artist. So then Ron picked up the phone, called everyone who had purchased the art, and fessed up. I called people up and said, look, this is the truth, this is the story. So if you still want the piece, then it's fine. If you don't, then that's fine too. A lot of people didn't want the piece. A lot of people were really pissed off. The ramifications of it for me was that I discovered that creating a fictional artist was really more than I had bargained for because I think everybody came suspicious of me after that. My uncle's world fell into two camps those that were impressed with his artistic genius and those that felt betrayed. So there was this battleground between the two groups of people. 
I was surprised about, you know, the people who took it the hardest and the people who took it the best. The people that got mad about the race issue were mostly white collectors who thought I was using race, you know, as manipulation for them to buy work. And most of the black people, well, a lot of black people bought work, were very supportive about the idea because they thought it exposed racism. I wouldn't say it was fistfights, but there was, like, very angry feelings expressed. Among the angriest was Ron's own wife, because she was also tricked. My cousin Aaron, Ron's son, says he knew all along his dad was really the anonymous artist, but for some reason his mom didn't. I thought it was silly that people that knew him well, like my mom, didn't know it was hit. Like, you could walk down into the basement and just see all the work. I feel like since he was saying it wasn't him, that was more important than anything she saw. Aaron's mom, who's now passed away, had been defending my uncle and the anonymous artist all over town. One of the reasons my mother was so upset was because, yeah, she she was sticking up for him. People that would say, this seems like Ron's work. She'd be like, no, it's not. I'm not proud that he had to keep it from certain people. But I think he would have his own reasons for that, and you'd have to ask him what those reasons were. I needed people, believe me, to build up the art, to build up the belief myself. People's belief in it made it stronger. So, yeah, her belief, since she was around me a lot, and I was talking to her about it all the time, made it grow. I think she understood, and I think she she was fine with it in the end. My uncle says his social and artistic experiment was a success. But the repercussions to my family were the price we all paid. Almost 15 years later, my mom is still really pissed at him. And my cousin Aaron says he hopes his dad learned a lesson. The problem is, when you hurt someone's feelings, no matter who it is, but especially your wife's feeling, there's a problem. And no matter what he says, I think if he got to do it over, he wouldn't have hurt anyone's feelings. But for my uncle Ron, it wasn't so simple. I think that having hurt feelings is not bad, is it? I mean, it's sort of is a way of growing in some ways. I mean, I hate to make it, you know, you hurt somebody and they grow. But the thing was about emancipation. It was freeing people from the constrained idea of how things work and how, how things operate. And, I mean, it all ended peacefully. No one got killed. A few years later, my uncle moved to Philly. And these days, he's got a little gallery there. Well, actually, he calls it a collection, not a gallery. It's a collection of artists who may not exist or fabricated artists who may not exist. So my identity is not local. It's infinite. Find out more about Ron Cohen, or should we call him the anonymous artist, his ongoing adventures on our website, snapjudgment.org. We're also going to have links to those New York Times articles if you want to check them out. That story is produced by Andrew Stelzer. Yep, it happened again. I know, I know, I know. But if you missed even a moment, not to worry. Subscribe right now to the amazing Snap Judgment Podcast. More stories than you can shake a stick at. Wherever you get your podcast, get this one. Follow the Snappage on Instagram at Snap Judgment Radio. You'll find us in the studio 
on light up roller skates, taking target practice at 99% invisible. They're right over there. Follow me on the Twitter. I'll tell you what I really think. Snap. It's brought to you by the team that looks up wherever they go. So, sneak up behind them and give them a good tickle. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, Pat, Spaceman, the CD Miller, and other alien sussman, Renzo Rocket Chip Gorio, Shayna, Oxygen Man, Sheely. This Mac uses the force. Eliza Smith, she, she can't use the force. Leon Morimoto drinks Tang. Lauren Newsom drinks. Beam up, Marissa Dodge. Beam down. Tail to cut. Flow. Warp drive, Wiley. Nancy, cloaking device, Lopez. John Facil is fresh out of the lithium crystals. And Nika Singh completed the Kessel Run in less than 11 parsecs. And this is not the news. No, this is not the news. In fact, you can collect all the dust and leaves and trash left in Mr. Barney's old woodshed into a single pile and then tell all the neighbor kids it's cotton candy. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. Thank you.